Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey guys, John Dutter, Matt here. Just a quick note before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to remind you guys about an opportunity that Lions of Liberty has. We've partnered up with Ocean Builders. What is Ocean Builders? Well, if you remember a few weeks ago, I interviewed the CEO, Grant Romelt, and what they are doing, they have bought a cruise ship that they are docking off the coast of Panama. They are setting up a, uh, it's a, a crypto cruise, a, a crypto cruise ship. Uh, people can buy rooms on the ship, live there, start businesses. Every single business on the ship is going to accept Bitcoin, at least at a, at a minimum. They can accept other currencies too. The plan is from there to build out and Ocean Builders has some awesome designs for sea uh, pods that uh, are actually, you'll be living, floating uh, on the ocean. And they also have land pods too. Really cool designs. Encourage you to go check it out. You can find that information by going first to lionsofliberty.com slash ocean. And you can find the podcast there to get more information. And then you can go ahead and click on through to uh, the link there and learn how to start your sea steading journey. All right, let's get rolling with today's show. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast network. And guys, got another great episode coming for you today as we get closer and closer to uh, Christmas, to the holidays, get closer and closer to the end of 2020. I just want to remind everyone out there that we do have three shows on Lions of Liberty. And if you're not subscribed, then you're not going to get all three shows delivered to your phone. In fact, you'll get none delivered to your phone and you got to go searching for the podcast. It's annoying. So just go hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to this, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever you're on, whatever podcasting app, Overcast. I like that one. Um, do that and you'll get our Monday show with Mark Clare, our Wednesday show, Electric Liberty Land with Brian McWilliams, and this show, Felony Friday. So what more could I ask for? Well, I could ask for something else and I will. I'm going to ask for you, if you've been listening for a while and you really enjoyed the show, please consider giving us a five-star rating and leaving a uh, nice little review. And if you want to put a little question you want us to ask on the show uh, that, you want to, that you're curious about, uh, drop that at the end of your review, and uh, we will try to get to it in an upcoming uh, an upcoming review answer session podcast. I guess we'll call it that. But uh, that's really all I got, guys. So I've got a great interview coming up, and uh, let's get right into it. My guest today on Felony Friday is William Henry. Uh, William was the Libertarian candidate for Lieutenant Governor of Indiana this year. He's a veteran of the U.S. Army and the Indiana Army National Guard. He also currently serves as chairman for the Indiana chapter of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, which commonly known as NORML. 
I actually didn't know the full the full name until reading it right there, but it is uh, normal, and there's probably a chapter in uh, in your city. Uh, he also owns and operates a small business focusing on digital marketing and communications for companies and organizations in his hometown of Plainfield, Indiana. William, welcome to Felony Friday. Well, thanks so much, John, for having me on and, and allowing me this opportunity to kind of talk about uh, some of the things I've been up to here in the state of Indiana and uh, trying to get some criminal reform uh, here regarding uh, cannabis or also known as marijuana. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, happy to have you on the show. Um, and uh, we have a lot to talk about as we were chatting about in the, in the pre-show chat. You, I mean, you've had a, you know, you've done a lot of different different things. I def- we definitely want to talk about your governor run. We'll start there. Definitely want to talk about normal and your activism and, and all that. So I think uh, hopefully we have time to touch on everything. But let's start before we even talk about your, your I said governor run, your lieutenant governor run. Um, before we talk about that, I kind of turn the page back to, you know, how does this all start? How do you get, uh, you know, what uh, brought you towards Libertarian Party or even greater than that? Uh, what got you interested first in the ideas of liberty? Well, um, I'm a recent uh, joiner of the Libertarian Party, and a lot of the the values and principles the Libertarian Party holds, I found myself in agreement to uh, wholeheartedly, and I felt the whole time uh, during that time trying to find myself politically that the libertarianism was was where I was supposed to be, and uh, there, I mean we have to do what we can uh, guerrilla style, I guess you could say to, to kind of get the word out there for libertarians, because, you know, in some States, luckily not in Indiana, but some States libertarians really have to fight to get on the ballot and they really have to uh, go out there and, and do a lot of footwork and a lot of work on their own um, to gain some sort of visibility within the crowd when it comes to election time. So, um, immediately when I, when I, you know, read through the, the, the values and, and the principles of the, the libertarian party and learned more about the party, that was where I belong. And I think a lot of folks uh, here recently, especially, uh, are, are just now finding out about the libertarian party and, and what they, what they're about and what they represent and, um, trying to push for liberty and freedom and getting our rights back to the individual and shrinking the size of government. So, so where were you before you said you were, you were a recent, uh, joiner of the libertarian party. What did you, what bucket did you categorize yourself in prior to that? I, I leaned, uh, Republican and, uh, more to the right. Um, I think a lot of the values from uh, the constitutional uh, conservatism that libertarians uh, value so much uh, really caught my eye. You know, those rights that we um, have, um, they need to be protected and we need to ensure that uh, no more bureaucracy or no more limitations are put on those rights. And we need to start stripping away some of the uh, layers uh, of bureaucracy they've placed on those rights as well. 100% 100% agree. What were your influence? You said you, you kind of came out of from the right, from the Republican side. I, myself, I can definitely relate to that. I grew up in a in a Republican home, and uh, you know, I thought, you know, growing up, that I thought that Republicans were actually for you know, with their actions, for small government and for the individual. But as I grew older, I started to recognize a lot of that was just just rhetoric. Um, was there something that you know? 
happened in your life? Did you have any influences or books you read or events that happened that really sort of opened your eyes to the ideas of liberty in that way? Really, I think it was seeing how the Indiana government was being ran, um, being directly involved in advocacy and activism at the state level uh, through my work with the uh, American Legion. I was administrator uh, of the state for the American Legion organization here in Indiana. And uh, working in that position, I was the adjutant is what the the technical title of it, it's called, but you're the lead administrator. And that puts you at the state level um, alongside with folks from the Indiana Department of Veterans Affairs and these other uh, organizations that are veteran focused like uh, DAV, VFW, AMVETS, some of these other similar uh, veterans organizations that are, that are related to that. And being able to work at that level um, administrating an organization, but not only that side of it, but working in the state house and working to advocate on behalf of veterans' bills at the state house, and starting to see how these committees and these commissions in the state um, are being ran and how they're operating, and and um, seeing that they're not uh, the commissions, especially in my view, were not being um, they were not following the rules and standards to the procedure. And that was causing a lot of conflict uh, on veterans issues and, and issues that they were trying to, and these commissions were trying to push forward. Um, and, and it was a, it was a very strange uh, kind of um, situation where you have the organizations um, at the state level who are performing um, basically service officer work for the state on behalf of the state. And we're basically um, helping veterans get their benefits and, and doing service office work. And in doing that, um, we're doing, we had a memorandum of, of agreement with the state of Indiana for the Veterans Affairs that all the work for the organization went toward uh, that agency's um, basically checking the blocks that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing at the federal level. So we had a very interesting um, organizational and agency kind of overlapping uh, happening in the state. Um, I got to experience a lot of that, try to work through a lot of that, work through re reforming those organizations and pushing these veterans initiatives forward together as a collective group, um, really organizing those organizations shoulder to shoulder to try to push toward what the common goals were and what we could attain uh, working with the legislators. So in that whole experience doing that, I got to see that the commissions on the veteran side and, and some of these other, you know, commissions that were working, they weren't working the way that they were supposed to be working. So that would kind of raise flags to me among other things that I had experienced through that period of time, trying to fight and push for veterans, uh, veterans benefits and issues uh, mm -hmm. across the board uh, during that experience. But that really opened my eyes that something was wrong in the state government and things weren't being ran the way that they should be ran. And a lot of folks were, uh, you know, kind of taken advantage of, of some of these commissions and these committees and, and kind of pushing through their initiatives uh, rather than the initiatives of the veterans themselves. So that was kind of a key indicator that uh, something was up 
uh, amongst the commissions and these other individuals who were being appointed to these positions. Uh, so I felt, you know, um, after going through all of that and um, um, some other things that I had went through uh, with the state, because I was also a whistleblower on the, on a state issue. Oh, really? What what was what was that issue? The the whistleblowing. I had received a few documents that had indicated that a fund was being misused out of the Veterans Affairs Office and uh, for the state, and I had taken those award letters that had leaked out of the department and showed them to the commander and, and my assistant adjutant and said, Hey, you know, we need to, we need to ask the inspector general to, to look into the agency, at least on this issue. And they were fine with it at the time. And, um, a couple of days later, we had another event. This was the day before I was supposed to take these letters to the inspector general to be uh, turned in by the adjutant of the department and they had uh, furnished me with a uh, resignation letter uh, pre-written for me wow that they had uh, demanded i sign and, and resign at the time and um indiana is a free hire free fire uh state and you know you don't really have any rights as a, as a worker here in the state of indiana um you know, so I went ahead and I, I had signed the um, the resignation, and it was and it was very upsetting to me um, to have to be forced to do that uh, out of an organization with you know they were threatening all kinds of of stuff if I didn't sign that letter. And the real reason behind even being furnished with the letter wasn't performance issues; it was. Mm -hmm it was these documents that I had been given leaked out of the department and those at the state level did not like the idea uh, of those documents being revealed to the public. And, um, and really that was just the smoke because after I had been forced to resign, um, I was given about 700 pages of material from that department that I had sifted through and, worked with investigative reporters and revealed all that to the public that there were hundreds of thousands of dollars that were being misused, nearly a million dollars of, of money that was being misused. And How was it being misused? Just out of curiosity, what types of things were you seeing? Well, there was, uh, they were using federal funds and TANF funds. So the temporary aid for needy family funds that was given to that department by the state was federal money. And there's limitations on how much of that can be spent on an administration or paying employees. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have a, a certain, I think it was around anywhere from 12 to 14% of that money that they were given from the state could only be used for administration, but they used a much higher percentage than what they were supposed to use on administration, hiring other folks into that agency using those TANF dollars. So that was one thing that was that was shown uh, another thing that was shown was uh, uh, misuse of of the um, uh, per diem accounts and things like that at some of these events that they were hosting for families with these TANF dollars too that there were egregious purchases and things like that that were happening um, with those dollars at those events and those events they were supposed to be working and 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 doing things and a lot of it a lot of it was was 
you know, spent on uh, rooms and it was spent on uh, individual per diems and things like that. Mm -hmm. These folks were, uh, had, uh, I guess they had the opportunity and, and means to, to do it at the time. So they were, they were using it like that. And that was the administrators who were kind of, you know, the, from the top down kind of thing. Well, if they do it, we can do it kind of thing. And, um, and with the, the actual fund that was initially um, shown to us too, there were some other things that were raised uh, about that. So there was about nine months of news stories that had broke uh, after that, um, whole issue. Was, how, how long ago was this? This was about two years ago, a little over two years ago. Um, it, I believe it was September uh, 2018. September 9th, 2018 was, okay. was the resignation date. But from that point, about a month after that, um, after digging through that that data that was given to me directly from that agency, some people had leaked it out of there. And, and what ended up happening was um, the director had ended up resigning uh, his position and uh, a couple others ended up resigning. No criminal charges were ever pressed. Uh, um, some of these the perps were, um, you know, filling out forms for, um, fund, these funds for themselves too, and they weren't even entitled to this this mm. month. So, I don't know how they worked that out with the state or how all that was was played out. It was all internal, whatever they did, um, but no charges were formally pressed against these individuals. Um, yeah. yeah, if you had a theft like that, uh, really, that's what it is. It's theft in the private sector. Um, you would have some sort of charges. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyone um, out there stealing from their job and right. stealing from veterans on top of that right. uh, would definitely be serving, uh, you know, suffering the consequences from that. Uh, but I don't know if it was because it was at that level, at the state level, that they were able to work with the administrators uh, to be able to kind of squirm out of that or, or what. I don't know what went on behind closed doors to, to make those handshake deals. Yeah, it makes you wonder how much deeper it went, maybe. I mean, there could could have been more to it. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure that was still just smoke, what had leaked out uh, at the time. So going through those things and being so involved and so uh, dedicated to veterans' uh, issues, I mean, that's what really drove me to uh, even explore in um, having the knowledge of the working government itself uh, through those, you know, through learning, basically, uh, through that position and advocating the way that I was able to advocate um, about the state government and what I could see, you know, and what I could felt I could impact if the time ever came up uh, for that, in which it did earlier this year. Uh, Bill Levin, a um, very prominent cannabis act activist here in the state of Indiana, had asked me to um, support him and run as his lieutenant governor uh, candidate. And I had um, pondered it for a while, talked with the family, talked with the kids, and um, eventually came to the conclusion before, you know, about a week before the convention actually happened here in the state. It was some, you know, early March that that had happened to make the decision to go ahead and um, step in, you know, throw my hat in the ring. And there was another um, 
there was another lieutenant governor candidate when we got to uh, convention. So um, Bill Levin had uh, to go up against Donald Rainwater. Um, mm-hmm. The delegates chose Donald Rainwater. And um, I went up, um, uh, you know, and I had. Was this your first time at a libertarian convention in any capacity? Yes, it was. It was yeah. my first time at a libertarian convention. It wasn't my first time at a convention because I, I was the adjutant of the, the American Legion. So I knew how conventions worked and right. I knew how the voting process kind of worked and and those how those slots are voted on too. And um, being able to go up against an opponent, um, Eric Charles, at the convention and being able to come out with the delegates votes was, was very nice. And to be paired up, I mean, it, it sucked to, for Bill Levin um, to be able to lose, you know, that candidacy opportunity, but having me paired with Donald Rainwater, a fellow veteran too, I don't, I, I think that the, the party really made, they came together and, and they made the best decision um, that they could for the party. And I think the delegates were, uh, you know, very smart putting two veterans uh, together. Uh, Donald uh, was a eight year Navy veteran and, and I'm a uh, nine, uh, close to 10 year um, army veteran uh, with a couple deployments too. So, that was a that kind of you know we knew the the veteran aspect was was very strong there after the mm-hmm. convention so i was i was you know i was kind of bummed f- for bill but to be able to still move forward and still carry that message that we had um and combine that with what donald had i think it was a it was a absolute um great package that went together and donald i mean he I couldn't have asked for a better candidate to be paired with, uh, with him when it came to, uh, public speaking, when it came to constitutional knowledge, when it came to, um, you know, all of these things and debate. I mean, if you had a chance to watch the Indiana gubernatorial debate, uh, absolute best performance. that yeah, I, I saw some clips from it. Um, very, very, very strong debate. Yeah. So it was, it was absolutely, I mean, and to be able to, I mean, we, we, we started to take off on the campaign and, um, once, you know, once the convention was over in March, immediately COVID started to, to slap down on everybody. So everyone was really becoming restricted. We're having to use, you know, more zoom, more teleconferencing and those type of things. And organizing was completely changed. Uh, for folks who didn't have, you know, who weren't up to speed yet uh, in their businesses or organizations, you know, coming into that. But, but that was, I mean, it was an absolute um, great experience because once we got into about middle of, of the COVID stuff around August, the mandates and stuff started, you know, July, August timeframe, somewhere in there, maybe even June, they were talking about mandates. And that's what really started to get people over to our side to to kind of look at what we're talking about and how we shouldn't be mandating these masks. We shouldn't be mandating all of this stuff. We should be giving people the best tools as far as information provided to them 
by the professionals and not forcing anyone to to comply or to do anything you know Mm -hmm. and the libertarian saying you know the um great ideas don't require force you know you if you have a good solid idea and you have good reasoning behind it and you have the science and data there um, there's no there shouldn't be any problem convincing the public that that's the right thing to do and the the public can um, decide how it wants to uh to handle itself you don't uh, directly uh, dictate that so right and the market would provide options the market would provide your stores that would have very strict you know requirements for masks and whatnot and would provide another store would probably provide an option where you didn't have to wear a mask and it'd be more loose so it's a shame yeah it's a shame across the board i mean i think probably where i'm in pennsylvania pennsylvania's probably been more strict in the mandates and, and things like that than um the midwest and indiana and those states but uh yeah, it's 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 been it's been a shame to watch a lot of these governors at just the power that they've grabbed, and once they grab that power, um, they're they're not going to give it back for, no. for any reason. And it didn't happen by accident. A lot of folks don't understand that, you know, our legislators crafted this law to give our governors this executive power. And a lot of the the legislators want to be like, well, you know, here in the state of Indiana, we have to have the governor call a a special session if they're out of session. So if there's a state emergency um, and he doesn't call a special session, then there ain't no special session getting called. And that's just how it works here in the state of Indiana. And without that, I mean, he wields the power until a uh, session comes in uh, to play again, which is in January. And our session runs from three to four, three to three and a half months, depending on the year. Um, but it's uh, from January to March or January to April, depending on, on the year here in the state of Indiana. So just a couple more questions about uh, the lieutenant governor run. Um, you, you guys did your percentages. What were they? You did pretty well. Finishing, uh, we were at 11.4% uh, for a statewide, that's the record for a statewide race here in the state of Indiana uh, on this campaign. So, I mean, that alone is a huge win for the Libertarian Party in the state of Indiana. In some of these counties, in uh, more than a, you know, a, th- a third of the counties, uh, we actually scored higher than the Democrats uh, scored. So we captured, I think it was around 33 or 34 counties. And we were second place just wow. in this run. Um, if this run were in two years for the secretary of state's run, um, that mean if we would have came out with a secretary of state with a score like that, uh, that would have changed the election laws here in the state of Indiana for libertarians and put them on a, a major party. Um listing and that's what we're going to be pushing for uh, over these next couple of years is really preparing for that secretary of state run that really changes us as a party so there's a lot of moving parts happening in the party and and being a not-for-profit organizer i know how you know the organizational uh, portion of it works and we've got to train people and we've got to prepare people to be able to take on the task of of running for office in their area and there's a lot of stuff that the party is doing here in the state of indiana to prepare for this next upcoming race um here in uh, 2024 and they have really been working uh, hard to prepare for i mean this weekend they've getting they're getting the counties together um, they've had 
more than a hundred people solidify their plans uh, to run for offices at, from local to state level uh, here in the state of Indiana. So there's been a lot of movement just because of this run, um, this gubernatorial ticket run. There's been a lot of momentum, um, you know, captured and still continuing to go on um, into this next election cycle, which is 2024 here in the state. Very cool. Very cool. So what, I mean, this might seem like an obvious question, but what exactly are a lieutenant governor's responsibilities? Well, here in the state of Indiana, lieutenant governor oversees all of the agricultural um, section sector of the state. It also oversees the economic development, um, the environmental affairs, um, and a lot of the agency's day-to-day kind of management. So a lot of the administration overseeing the administrators in these agencies. So um, there's just, uh, it's basically like the chief of staff for the governor really mm-hmm. attending to these um, those director kind of kind of executive directing kind of duties um, for the governor. Um, so, and when the governor is not able to be at an event, uh, the lieutenant governor uh, steps in in the place. If uh, same thing, if the governor is ill or sick and can't do something, then the lieutenant governor would step in um, and be able to fulfill that role at any time. Hey, everybody, taking a quick break here from the show. Wanted to remind you all to check out. Uh, my man Tyler Colford, aka Crypto Man, and his new song "Free Ross." If you didn't hear my recent interview with Lynn Ulbricht, that was episode Felony Friday, episode two hundred thirty. Interviewed Lynn Ulbricht, played Tyler's song uh, "Free Ross." It's fantastic, phenomenal. Not just for uh, the message of freeing Ross Ulbricht, but overall for changing the broken criminal justice system. All the proceeds from uh, the Free Ross song, hashtag Free Ross by Crypto Man. You can find it on Spotify and Amazon, Amazon Music. 100% of the proceeds from the song, hashtag Free Ross by Crypto Man, go towards freeing Ross Ulbricht. So please check it out. These are perilous times when they ruin your lives over victimless crimes And they sever your ties from your business loved ones and family wide New slave labor, they barely pay you Don't care about work ethic or major Let's, let's shift here and talk about uh, your activism, uh, your, uh, your role uh, with, with Normal and, and your role as a cannabis activist So what got you involved and what, what got you interested in uh, becoming, you know Evolve with normal and advocating for cannabis reform. I was working, um, like I was talking earlier, working the advocacy role at the state house, and cannabis was one of the issues that we were trying to work on through veterans organizations uh, because there was that much movement um, foot at the time to get veterans away from opioid pain medications, to get them away from benzodiazepine uh, medications and, and alcohol and other, you know, deadly drugs um, that they were susceptible to um, taking a lot of or being addicted to and then succumbing to accidental or, or 
purposeful uh, overdose deaths. And that was, you know, veteran suicide is, is very prevalent still today. Um, we've lost more veterans to suicide than we have, you know, the wars to, on global terror. So there's a lot that we can be doing uh, to minimize that suicidal impact here at the, at the individual level by allowing access to a safer uh, substance such as cannabis to um, fulfill the needs of mental anguish, fulfill the needs of physical pain um, or any other type of, of ailment that they might take uh, opioid or benzodiazepine medications to uh, kind of help them with daily. This was um, in 2017, I believe it was early 2017, the uh, American Legion Department of Indiana passed a uh, resolution that was supporting medical cannabis here in the state of Indiana. And then two other organizations uh, subsequently also followed suit and they passed resolutions to support cannabis here in the state of Indiana. And working that, I mean, working that aspect of it, I mean, we did a lot of veterans stuff here in the state, but the biggest one that always stood out was cannabis because all of these veterans and their family members too, and a lot of veterans, family members who had seizures or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's disease uh, that were affected by not having uh, access to cannabis medications that we, that our neighbors around us now have. And, you know, in Pennsylvania, you guys have finally, uh, your governor and Lieutenant governor have really worked to get that done in, in your state there. That was really good uh, that they actually passed that. But the states, are, we are seeing all these states around us do this and they're taking action, but yet we're still arresting folks and we're criminalizing folks and we're attacking our communities because they're possessing cannabis. And at this point, I, I mean, I know the UN just now, you know, over the last couple of days have made a decision that, that they're going to, you know, uh, reclassify cannabis at the, at the United Nations level, which subsequently what the U S has been waiting for to finally make a move. And now it looks like with the more act uh, in Congress right now, that, that, that may be happening. Um, but it was the veteran advocacy that got me into that role. And it was, and after I had left that veteran advocacy role, at least, you know, being a paid, you know, person full time, uh, doing that. I still continue. I mean, I still advocate for veterans issues, uh, on my own when I can too, but cannabis was a major issue and, and it had major support in the state. And I personally support, um, cannabis, uh, mm -hmm. as a, an alternative to alcohol or pain pills or benzodiazepines, all of which, you know, at, taken as a as a veteran myself and i can tell you that cannabis is far less of an intoxicant um, from personal uh, experience than all three of those other medic you know the, ben the, benzos are incredibly addictive yes they are yes and benzos i mean if people 
if you're on benzos for a long time and you suddenly have to stop taking them, that can cause sudden death. Mm -hmm. That can cause seizures um, because your body is so dependent on what those drugs are producing inside your brain uh, to continue to operate and function uh, daily. You need that continuous uh, intake of that kind of medication. Uh, otherwise, you can, you can die from um, not having that type of medication. So it's very dangerous medication to begin with. Yeah, I think it was, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Jordan Peterson. Um, he, I think he, he got on uh, benzos in the last year or two to deal with depression. And he actually, he, he, when he tried to get off them, yeah, he almost, he almost died. I'm not sure what his side effects were, but I think he actually, in order to detox from them, he had to go out of the country to, uh, to Russia or something in order to detox. Yeah, I don't doubt it. And to get those alternative you know, means to, to wean yourself off of those medications. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous to have to jump through all those hoops um, and to be addicted to it or, you know, dependent on those substances mm -hmm. to begin with. Um, you should have a safer option to begin with. So your role for normal, you are the, uh, you're the chairman of, of the uh, Indiana chapter, correct? So what, what, what comes with that role? And, uh, uh, really, I guess, where do you see cannab cannabis de decriminalization or legalization? Where do you see that going in the next couple of years in Indiana? Um, in that role, um, I'm the chief executive officer of the organization. I'm responsible for the organization financially now and, and all of these other, you know, roles that you have to assume. We, we obviously aren't, you know, we're not a huge organization, um, but we're a, we're a very well-known organization now with all of the reform that's happening. Um, and here in the state of Indiana, um, We've got a good following uh, through social media and a lot of other ways that we keep people informed and educated about cannabis facts, knowledge. And that's our main role as an organization is to inform people about, you know, the facts and knowledge in the science behind cannabis, even though the FDA um, won't recognize the science that's available out there. You know, the, the national academies uh, has produced, um, a, you know, a, a, basically a review of all of the cannabis knowledge and scientific data that was out there. And they had came to the conclusion that the, the majority uh, of those cases, people, um, they, they saw relief in what they were seeking uh, using cannabis for those particular conditions. So um, that science alone, I mean, it speaks for itself, but the FDA and the USDA and some of these other um, federal uh, and state uh, agencies won't recognize this science. Uh, they won't recognize the things that are happening in the state around states around us like Michigan and Illinois and Ohio regarding medical cannabis or even uh, adult use cannabis reform uh, in those areas. And, and in Indiana, it really, you know, I don't know what's going to happen because we're the only state that they've taken steps backwards on. They gave us cannabis, uh, they gave us um, hemp. So when the federal government allowed the hemp programs to take place, Indiana um, had loosened up their law and, and made it in a way to where uh, those hemp products were legal here in the state of Indiana. 
but they didn't realize that the hemp um, came with the flower too. And it looks and it smells like what they know as marijuana. That, that it, scares them just because the, the, the perception, it looks too much like it. Yeah, it looks and it smells and, um, and people were buying it. And that's the thing. I mean, a lot of folks were buying it and using it and getting relief from it, even though it has a low amount of, of THC, there's ever other cannabinoids within that plant material. That's, that's helping folks and CBD oil, hemp oil. Yeah. I mean, people get definitely get help from that. Oh yeah. And CBD and THC, those are just two of the, of the cannabinoid molecules. There's hundreds of other cannabinoid molecules that are beneficial in the plant and are nutritional, um, in the plant. And, um, the Lieutenant governor, um, uh, candidate has a debate and I was able to, to go to a debate where I was, uh, up against the other two candidates. And when I spoke, because they had asked a question, I mean, Lieutenant governor has to oversee agriculture. Um, and they, and they asked a question directly related to, to hemp and cannabis. And, and that's where I tried to explain, um, to everyone that I haven't heard anything about the human endocannabinoid system. And these are the science and the facts behind, uh, some of the other, reasons why some of these other states have have legalized because they were able to you know educate everyone regarding these these facts and science and of course they don't say anything about that in in the in the reports regarding the write-ups for the debate Uh, they 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 omit that portion of what i was talking about but they include some of the other aspects which was good but i was really hoping that they would include some of the scientific aspects and and even at that level there's i mean even outside of the government this was a this was like a farm bureau uh, associated deal where these folks didn't even want to report you know that as fact or data that i was that i had you know, physically said there at the debate on record on camera and, and everyone has it, but yet they didn't report that. So that's kind of where we're at here in the state of Indiana. We have a lot of folks who are um, closet supporters, but folks, we need more folks to come out and direct support and say, look, we've got to do this. We've got to do it now. And, and I'm really hoping that with these federal changes happening, that at some point, the state legislature is going to make their move uh, during uh, the start of session come January. Um, if these uh, bills at the federal level uh, uh, actually make their way through, um, because Indiana has a as a history that I have seen to follow a long suit, whatever federal does, then they can do it. And um, except for when it comes to the hemp issue, which I'll get back to now yeah so you said you said they went backwards yeah um, so did they allow growing industrial hemp and then disallow it or well they allowed the flower and then they took the flower away specifically and when they did that they restricted a portion uh that they restricted a form of hemp uh which i mean what does that mean so if you take can you how can you just take the flower away is that in Indiana code, the way they had written the law um, was that as long as these hemp products follow these standards, which were like a QR code and packaging and clear labeling and and these 
those type of standards that they were allowable, but they didn't, the legislators didn't realize that this also included hemp flowers, which uh, are the tops of the matured flowers, mm -hmm. which are, it's cannabis. It's just like uh, what's known as marijuana, high THC, and it smells and it, and it, and it's very similar. And but it doesn't. It's not. It's not psychoactive. It, uh, yeah, there's no therapeutic effect to it. That takes direct effect. That people who you're not going to feel a high from it. Yeah, there's no physical. Um, there's no physical effects to it, and uh, or at least not extremely noticeable physical effects. Mm -hmm. Some people who who don't use cannabis a lot who may consume some smokable hemp flour might feel more of an effect than what someone who maybe uses high thc flour uh, all the time but the effect is very low and it's in it uh, and it, the physical effect is very low with that and they they had these special qr codes on the packaging so you could be able to scan this with a qr code reader and it would give you the the lab test results for this particular product and you know they acted like the police didn't have smartphones or a way to Q scan these qr codes to ensure that what this stuff was was actually because when they run it through their tests uh, for thc it's only detecting thc so the t so the tests that they're running on this plant material show just the same as it would be with high THC cannabis because it's only looking for a detection of THC. So this was where the crux was of their yeah. argument that, oh, well, we have to get rid of the hemp flower now because it, it, it looks and smells too similar and the officers can't tell the difference. Um, when they had set those safety procedures and they had set those standards themselves too, um, and they had backstepped on that. So it, they made it a, a misdemeanor to possess, uh, manufacture, or uh, transport hemp flour uh, in the state of Indiana. Um, and that was the step back that they took. Wow. Um, but, but can you purchase like CBD oil or hemp oil or things like that in Indiana? Yes. Yes. You can still purchase that. And what's also, I mean, now the hemp farmers have, have figured out a way to extract this new cannabinoid that they have discovered called Delta eight THC and specifically Delta nine THC is what is outlined in the um, DEA schedule. So Delta nine <laughs> is the illegal THC. And when they wrote in 2018, when they wrote the, the new farm bill, they legalized tetrahydrocannabinols, THC for hemp. And what that did was, was a, it made all THC from hemp legal. Well, it's only to a certain extent that you're going to get THC from hemp, but there are also extraction processes that some of these uh, processors are using. And what they've done is they've discovered that there's a particular uh, molecule called the Delta-8 THC molecule that is not outlined in the state's illegal substances list or the, the federal DEA substances list. And it's an extra cannabinoid that provides... Uh, physical therapeutic effects of THC, hmm. but not to the extent of Delta 9. But you're, 
there's they're getting now there's carts on the market and some of these other things that um that are you know coming out on the legal market now that i mean how are they so the not having the hemp flower and then you're having the delta eight carts on the on the market and some of these other i mean they're finding way very people are very creative and they have to find ways to be able to provide uh to be able to sell these products um and not lose money a lot of these farmers when they restricted the hemp flower sales these farmers lost you know, individual farmers at their personal farms losing quarter of a million to half million dollar revenues a year because they anticipated uh, having the flour to be able to sell to the people in the state of Indiana. But that was that was squashed this year. And there's current litigation happening uh, with these companies uh, against the state of Indiana and Governor Eric Holcomb uh, called out in that as well uh, regarding some of this preemptive type of um, lawmaking that they're doing to to kind of attack that um, the cannabis community or the cannabis business aspect of the market yeah they really they really cut the legs out from under the farmers who were growing it thinking they were you know obeying the law or regulations um, to the fullest degree planning setting up their business plans under those assumptions and then just completely changing the rules. But that's what government does. So. Yeah, they start to get ahead and they pull the rug out from under them. Yeah. So let's let's talk uh, last question here. Where do you see yourself um, going forward in activism? Do you see yourself running for for office in the in the years to come? Well, I certainly have learned a lot in this run and um, to see everything that had happened um, during, you know, that nine month period uh, leading into the election. I mean, um, it's in my blood now, I think, and I really learned a lot. And when it comes to just, I mean, just understanding what a campaign is uh, alone, because organizationally, you know, I worked in organizations and worked in non-profit organizations, but when it comes to political organizations, I hadn't worked a lot uh, up until this last year uh, directly with political organizations outside of just attending events or calling myself a political affiliate of some sort. Um, I never really had that chance to experience that uh up front and personal and going through that and my wife as well she ran for state representative uh, crystal henry here in in our district um, this year as well um, we learned a lot this year and we know and she had good success too she showed about six a little over six percent and that's pretty good for you know a district to be getting twice as much as they normally have gotten in the state. And in, in our case, the gubernatorial ticket three times as much um, that creates huge momentum for the party. Like I said earlier, and, and that's really going right now. And that's where my heart is, is growing this party and getting more qualified individuals to these ranks and getting them um ready to go and using the knowledge that I have been able to gain over this last year and share that with these individuals and making sure that they're ready and they're prepared uh, to go when it, when it comes to 2024 on that uh, campaign after the convention and really what to expect and, and really work the, with the organization to try to grow that as much as possible. 
Well, that's awesome. And it sounds like in Indiana, the Libertarian Party really, you know, with the strong performance has a lot to build off. So I'm excited to watch what uh, what comes from that. Um, I said last question, I guess I lied. One more question. Uh, where can people follow you on social media or, you know, reach out to you if, if they want to? Um, I do have a website. It's uh, williamhenry.us. Uh, it was the only uh, uh, suffix left uh, of the internet for William Henry's. There's a lot of them out there. Um, but williamhenry.us, um, you can find me there. Uh, I'm on uh, Facebook too. You could just look me up, William Henry. Um, shoot me a friend request. Um, I'm on uh, um Twitter and, and Instagram and all the major um, uh, social media networking as well. So, um, yeah, and also go to uh, Donald uh, or rainwaterforindiana.com. Uh, that was our uh, campaign website. If you want to kind of look on there and see um, what the uh, Donald Rainwater was up to uh, during that campaign and, and some of the things that we had put out during that time, that would be good uh, for folks to, to look up as well. All right. Sounds good. William, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode of Felony Friday. Another awesome episode. Just want to remind everyone before you get going here after your next uh, next podcast and your shuffle or whatever it is you're doing with your, uh, your day today. I want to thank you for giving me your time and uh, listening to this interview. I want to ask you, please, to share this with a friend. The only way that we're going to expand this message that we're going to reform this criminal justice system is by sharing interviews just like this with your network. Very easy to do. And I also want to ask you to please, if you have not yet checked it out, you need to go to the Lions of Liberty store. It's lionsofliberty.store. We have a bunch of new t-shirt designs, really interesting stuff, really eye-catching designs. Uh, Of course, our taxation is death shirt has been a hit. It's selling like crazy. We now have the, uh, the tax on wax off shirt. Just awesome. And and there's more coming. We're really trying to get into uh, what we're calling it the Lions of Liberty brand of shirts. So you're going to get the cool design on the front and then up, just real small, up by the tag on the back, you're going to have our Are You Ready to Roar logo. Uh, We're trying to, you know, take another angle here and influence people through, uh, you know, some snazzy t shirts. So check it out, lionsofliberty.store. And remember, if you're in the Lions of Liberty Pride, you get 20% off. So for as little as five bucks a month, you're going to get 20% off all your t-shirt orders. So to join the Pride, go to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. And with that being said, guys, thank you so much for joining me. Have a great weekend or week or whenever you're listening to this. Just have an awesome day. I'll talk to you next week. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up. And the fires of liberty burning.